0: I am Matt Van Cleve, uh, teaching pastor here at Blue Oaks. Uh, Colossians 3:17 is one of the key verses in the New Testament. Uh, Paul says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, do everything in the name of Jesus. Do it in the way Jesus would do it if he were in your place. Uh, Now it's possible for us to get kind of vague or abstract about what it means to live in the name of Jesus. And so Paul moves directly from this pivotal verse to talk about three of the most common and important areas of life, Uh, marriage, parenting and work. How we relate to those uh, in those key areas is critical. Uh, I decided to record this message from my home today uh, because this is where I've been doing marriage and parenting and work for the last several months. You see, Paul is moving ordinary relationships, these ordinary ways of living, into the realm of living in the name of Jesus. This is what he says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eyes on you to to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Uh, If you think about it, society, uh, human well-being, is built uh, to a large extent on families and work. Uh, And I want you to imagine something. Uh, Imagine a society where families just work right. Uh, where husbands and wives love and cherish one another, uh, where they seek to enjoy one another and they honor the commitment they made when they got married, uh, where they promise that promise is actually important. Uh, they don't violate their promise to each other, no affairs, no betrayals. Uh, imagine a world where there was no pain of affairs or betrayals, uh, no resentment from that sort of thing. They seek to communicate with each other honestly and in a loving way with grace and truth. Imagine a world where the parent-child relationship works right, where children respect and admire and honor their fathers and mothers, and where parents are patient and loving and wise in raising and shaping their kids. Imagine a society where workers are committed to their tasks Uh, They work with diligence and creativity and perseverance. And employers are devoted to those who work for them. Uh, They work to help people realize their full potential. They appreciate the unique gifts of every individual and treat them with respect and fairness. Imagine that kind of world. Well, I believe this is what's at stake in what we're looking at today. This is Paul's vision. Followers of Christ he said. And he's very concrete about this. Ought to do marriage and family and work in Jesus' name. And so we're going to look at this. Uh, One real quick note before we do, and this has to do with how we interpret scripture. Uh, This passage talks about slavery, how slaves relate to their masters, I wanna mention this because for a long time through the 1800s, a little more than 100 years ago, uh, people said the Bible could be used to defend slavery. They would say, it's right there. Paul says, slaves obey your masters, so slavery is right. Uh, And this is an an important principle. Uh, Just because the writers of scripture address people in a certain social institution it doesn't mean that that particular institution or arrangement is the best reflection of god's will for human beings Uh, for instance when the bible was written uh, monarchy was the governmental arrangement a totalitarian government Uh, and that doesn't mean that uh, totalitarian governments are god's will for human beings Uh, We understand as we look at the whole of scripture that there are societies where there is freedom. And more likely that reflects the will of God, that people have freedom. Uh, In Paul's day, the church was in no position to overthrow slavery. And so Paul's concern was, how do you live as a follower of Jesus in a society where slavery is just a given? Uh, Even though it's obvious that slavery is not compatible with God's ultimate will for a human being. Similarly, uh, in Paul's day, husbands had almost absolute power over their wives. A wife was seen as a possession, uh, a lot like a piece of furniture. A husband could divorce his wife for virtually any reason. Uh, He could divorce divorce her for burning food, one rabbi said. But a wife had virtually no power to divorce her husband. Now Paul's not calling for an overthrow of such systems as these, but he doesn't mean that a system like slavery or patriarchy reflects God's ultimate desire for human beings. I hope you get that. Okay, so I wanna say a brief word or two about marriage and then about parenting, and then we'll move on to what it means to work in Jesus's name. Uh, So first of all, marriage. Paul says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that includes your marriage. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Uh, The question I'd like to pose for those of you who are married is this. uh, If I were doing my marriage in Jesus' name, as realistically as that can be given who I'm married to and how they're not perfect and I'm not perfect, uh, if I were doing my marriage in Jesus' name, if uh, if I took that seriously, what's one thing I would change? Uh, how would you answer that question? What's one thing uh, I would change? Now, when Paul addresses married people, he generally comes back to the issue of servanthood. Husbands love your wives, never treat them harshly. Wives submit to your husbands. you know in Ephesians five, Paul describes what a husband's love should look like. He says it should look like the love Christ had for the church. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, it's a, a love of sacrifice and servanthood. Uh, that's what love in a marriage in Jesus' name looks like. Marriage outside of that generally looks like, well, how can I get what I want from this other person? When our three kids were younger, my wife, Kathy, was home full time with them and I was at work full time. And when we would come together at the end of the day, we would generally ask the question, how did your day go? And then there would be a description. But underneath whatever words we used was a kind of subtext that went, my day was harder than your day. So you really ought to take care of me. Uh, Kathy would ask me about lunch, and I would say, oh, I had lunch with uh, someone from our church. And she would say, you mean you ate at a restaurant with an adult? Uh, You didn't have to cut their food? Um, You had a conversation with verbs and everything? And and then I'd ask her, well, what did you do for lunch? Uh, Well, I took the kids to the park. You mean you got to go to the park and play with the kids and have a picnic and play games and just hang out? Uh, There was always this kind of subtext of angling or positioning uh, division of labor kinds of issues. How can I get you to serve me? Uh, Are we the only couple who's done this sort of thing? And then contrast that with just a a couple weeks ago. uh, We had just been through a pretty intense couple of days, actually. And so I was saying to Kathy... Uh, Because there were several tasks that I needed to get done. I was saying, you know, I'll make you a deal. Uh, I'll help you with this task. If then after that, I can have this time uh, to be by myself. And Kathy just cut me off and she said, that's okay. Uh, I'll take care of this work. Um, Go do whatever you want. And she just chose to serve. Um, Well, when she did that, it made me think, well, I want to serve her like that. You know, servanthood, when it's offered, not in every case, but generally when it's offered, causes you to want to serve the other person. Uh, it's mutually escalating. When you start thinking, you know, how can I angle to get more of what I want out of this other person? That tends to be destructive. And so the question on this marriage thing that I'd like you to consider if you're married is how are you doing at serving your spouse? Are you constantly measuring who's done the most work, or are you becoming freer in serving your spouse? Uh, One other question here for those of you who are not married, uh, it may be that you're dating or you're open to the possibility of getting married. Are you doing that in Jesus' name? Are you saying, I wanna date in a way that honors Jesus? I wanna date in a way that honors his teaching? For instance, that sexual intimacy is reserved for a marriage commitment. So if you're dating, are you dating in Jesus' name? Uh, if you're married, are you doing your marriage in Jesus' name? Uh, I want you to think about that, and we're gonna talk about parent, uh, the parent-child relationship next. All right, now Paul moves on to the parent-child relationship. And I'm in my oldest daughter, Lily's room. Uh, She's going to be a freshman at Foothill High School. This is what Paul writes. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So he's moving the relationship into the sphere of our spiritual life, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Paul is saying to parents, it's really easy to respond to your child in a way that causes them to lose heart. And children, it's easy to be disobedient when relating to your parents. And so the question here is, if you're the parent, what am I doing that causes my child to lose heart, to become discouraged? Or if you're the child, what am I doing that's interpreted by my parents as disobedience? I was talking to a mother of four about the challenge of parenting, and she said, we had four children. I remember how, but I don't remember why. Uh, In the midst of the pressure of parenting, it becomes real possible to respond to my kids, Paul says, in a way that causes my children to lose heart. So again, the question here, uh, what might I be doing that causes my child or my children to lose heart or to become discouraged? Uh, Nagging can be one, Uh, belittling their efforts, uh, inappropriate kinds of teasing, uh, comparing them to siblings or other children, uh, failing to uh, provide boundaries, failing to provide discipline, Because then what happens is when you go out and hit reality, uh, they're not going to be prepared. Uh, Unrealistic expectations, maybe. Paul says, parent in such a way, uh, make it your goal that your children don't lose heart or become dispirited or broken or fragile. The goal is to build large hearted, courageous, servant minded human beings. Parent in that way. I'll mention one real specific application point here. Uh, If you're parenting, make a commitment that you're going to devote adequate time to the task of parenting. That whatever regrets you might have when you come to the end of your life, make a commitment and say, parenting is not going to be one of them. I'm going to devote adequate time. It's going to be the best I've got. This is a crucial time in our day. Uh, I was reading recently about university cafeteria designs. Uh, This is a very interesting thing. Universities in our country have to change the way students eat in their university settings. Uh, When I was in college, we got whatever mystery meat they were serving for the day, and we had to wait in line at a certain time to get it. Uh, More current designs are like restaurants with a variety of foods that students can eat any time of the day. And the reason why is students don't grow up eating home cooked meals anymore. Mom and dad both work and if they're all going to eat together, it's usually with someone calling and saying, "You know, hey, what do you want me to pick up tonight? Uh, kids just grow up in our society, eating in front of the television or in their bedroom or grabbing something on their way to their sport or activity. But for a long time, for many centuries, a family gathered around a table like this. Um, That's where people connected. That's where they learned to share, where they learned to communicate. That's where they learned to fight. Uh, I imagine many of you learned the rules of fighting around the table. Uh, It's kind of funny, but it's really quite serious. Um, That's where parents would say things like one more word out of you, you know, you learn the one more word rule um, and then you would learn, well, there's a boundary right there. A friend of mine was telling me about a teacher who asked the kids in the class, 26 kids in the class, how many of you have your own place around the table out of 26 kids, 20 did not have their own place around the table, which my friend was saying means uh, they don't even eat dinner once a week together. If people do something once a week, they generally gravitate toward their place. Uh, Are you devoting adequate time? That's just one specific application. And take this either way uh, in this relationship. If you have children, are you handling that relationship as best you know Uh, in the Lord? If not, then ask the question, how would you handle the parent-child relationship differently if I was doing it in the way Jesus would do it if he was in my place, if I was parenting in his name? Or if you're the child, how would you treat your parents differently if you were relating to them in Jesus' name? Again, you have to be realistic about this. There may be issues with your parents or with your children that are not easily resolvable. Uh, But it may be that there's a step that you could take, an act of service, uh, an expression of love, a note, a phone call. You know, when Paul says, do everything in the name of Jesus, he gets real concrete with it. How are you doing the parent-child relationship? What do you need to do differently? Think about that, and I'll be right back. All right, now we're gonna spend the rest of our time talking about what it means to work in Jesus' name. Uh, This is my office, uh, where I spend a lot of time uh, during the day. Uh, Now in this passage, Paul is specifically addressing the relationship between slaves and masters because in those days, that was the most common work relationship. Uh, There were not large corporations and so on. Uh, That would look different, obviously, if it was framed in our day. This is what he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Uh, Here's where some of us need to do some serious soul searching, because people who work in Jesus name ought to be fundamentally distinct. Paul says, Do your work with sincerity of heart and with reverence for Christ. And not just some of the time, not just when you're being watched and not just when there's something in it for you. And so I want to ask us to do a real honest self-exam here about our work, uh, whatever sphere we work in. And the question is, how do I work? Am I working wholeheartedly or am I working just to get by with minimal effort? Paul says, were to be the kind of employees Jesus would be if he was in our place. And Jesus knew a lot about work. Uh, He was a carpenter for a long time. Uh, How do you think he did his work? I bet he brought the same kind of diligence and wholeheartedness to his work as a carpenter as he did to his work as a teacher and healer. Uh, So can we just covenant together as a church that we're going to be the kind of people who bring wholehearted passion to our work in a way that makes our company or our department or our team different. This is working in Jesus' name. Now look at verse uh, 23. Uh, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Uh, What kind of work is he referring to? Whatever you do it doesn't necessarily mean we have to be paid for it. Uh, For example, uh, is a parent who stays at home uh, full time to care for small children and manage a household, is that still doing work? In a biblical sense, yes it is. And you know, our society gets a little confused on this one. Uh, Tony Campolo said when his wife was home full time with the kids, sometimes she would be asked, what do you do? As kind of a put-down. And this was her response. I'm socializing two homo sapiens in the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition so that they can become agents for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia God had in mind from the beginning of time. And then she'd ask, and what is it that you do? (laughs) Whatever you do, Paul says. There may be a paycheck associated with it. Maybe not Uh, tasks that you do at home, uh, tasks that you do for a corporation. Uh, Paul is very comprehensive here. So we need to think real broadly about work. This affects every one of us, Uh, students at school. Learning is part of your work, part of whatever you do, Uh, volunteering, uh, whatever you do. This is not just for people uh, who draw paychecks. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. I think Paul is very serious about his language here. Uh, He's not casual when he says this sort of thing. And so I want us to reflect on work this past week. If Jesus was your direct supervisor, would you have done your work any differently than you did? Uh, If you're in contracting, how would you have done repairs if you were doing repair work on Jesus' house, especially knowing that he was a carpenter, uh, so he knows what kind of work could be done, uh, how would you answer phones or type documents or teach classes if you knew that Jesus was going to check your work? You see, we work for Jesus fundamentally. That's the person I work for. I'm teaching right now for Jesus, he's my boss. And so I wanna work in such a way that when Jesus looks at my work, it meets with his approval. Now this leads to questions like, am I working with integrity? Uh, Do I ever use expense accounts for personal stuff? Uh, During the time I'm supposed to be at work, am I giving my time with diligence? Uh, Whether you have a boss that you love or you have a boss that's very difficult, remember that you work for God. If you have problems with the person that you work for, don't think you're getting back at them by doing less than your best at work. Paul says you don't work for your master. You don't work for your CEO or your supervisor. You work for God. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Uh, now verse 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it's the Lord Christ You are serving. And if we were to ask the average person on the street, what's the number one reason you work at your job? What do you think the answer would be? Probably money, right? And here's the deal. If my focus is simply on what I get in money, I'll come to resent work. And I'll fundamentally misunderstand it. This is a widespread attitude in our day where the focus is just on what I get from my work. And we have this illusion that what we get is what's going to make us happy. Uh, Lottery winners generally will all make the same comment after they hit it big. They'll say, it's not going to change my life. And then six months later, they quit their job. They have a new house and a new car. Uh, One guy called his wife. He said, I won the lottery. Start packing. She said, wow, that's great. Warm weather or cold weather. He said, I don't care as long as you're gone when I get home. (laughs) Uh, They did a survey of lottery winners in New York, found two things. One thing was that the majority of people who won the big lottery said that they weren't happier now than they were before winning. The second thing they found was people won't give up the money even though they're not happier. Some of them even said they were less happy with the money, but they wouldn't give it back. A people whose primary motivation for work is money will always feel resentful and restless and dissatisfied and discontent. Now, this is a very interesting phrase Paul uses, this idea that you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Uh, By Roman law in Paul's day, uh, Paul wrote to a city that was under Roman law. By Roman law, guess how much wealth slaves were allowed to inherit? Nothing. Nothing. Slaves were not allowed by law to inherit. If a slave somehow came into a possession, they could not pass those on to the next generation. Inheritance was for the wealthy and the free and the powerful, not for slaves. And this really is a very beautiful expression that Paul is making to the church. Paul says, listen, friends, you have an inheritance waiting for you. You think Bill Gates' kids are in for a big inheritance? Just wait. You will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. In this life, reward for your work is not fair. And that's part of what Paul is saying in verse 25. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Uh, There's going to be justice one day because there isn't in this life. There may be a lot of us who work in a workplace and we get discouraged because it's unfair because there's office politics or bias or prejudice that determines who gets what and who climbs to what level. Or there's favoritism about who gets promoted or who gets noticed. Paul is saying, try not to get discouraged because the day is coming when God will look at the work of his faithful servants and God will say, well done and there will be a reward. Employees who faithfully give themselves diligently to work that never earns much recognition or large salaries or corner offices, these people sometimes wonder, is it worth it? I know I could have more success. I could climb higher if I just cut some corners or if I manipulate people who work for me or use fear and intimidation with them like others in the work world do. neglect my family, become a workaholic. Uh, it's really—is it really worth the sacrifice of being a person of integrity when it seems like I just get penalized for it? Well, Paul says it's worth it because someone is watching, someone is keeping track. It is worth it. Someday you're going to hear, "Well done." God's going to say, "Well done. I'm proud of you." Now step into your eternal reward. Step into. Uh, the life where your work will be fulfilled. No more frustration, no more wasted effort. Paul says, do life in Jesus's name and get real concrete about it. For when you love your spouse in the Lord, for when you honor your parents and raise your children in the Lord, when you work at the tasks in your career, around your home or in your volunteering and so on, When you do that work in the Lord, you're doing the work of the kingdom. All right, so let's pray now as Michaela comes to lead us in a closing song. Uh, God, I just pray for the people who are watching right now that you would fill them with your spirit so that we can actually go out and live our lives in Jesus' name, so that we could do our marriages and our parenting and our work in Jesus' name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.